It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have Many of your burning questions answered here. My next guest, Jack Rocco, MD, has more than 30 years as a practicing orthopedic surgeon. His work has taken him to many countries and cultures, including to Japan, where he served in the U.S. Air Force, and to Madagascar, where, through a nonprofit organization he established, He treated children, suffering primarily from clubfoot. He has served on the board of Shriners Hospital for Children in Philadelphia. Recycled, his first book chronicles the -the behind-the-scenes, reluctant, and subconscious journey exploring the impact of being relinquished and adopted during the baby scoop era of the mid-60s. Raised with strong family nurturing, the shocking discovery of his nature, And finally, a reconciliation of the two. He was raised in Erie, Pennsylvania, has lived and worked in cities like Philadelphia and Charlotte, North Carolina, and at the time of publication was moving to Hartford, Connecticut. He's a proud father of two soon-to-be adult children who live in Rhode Island. In this episode, Jack and I explore being from the same generation, not recalling, not knowing that we were adopted, and how publishing a memoir is our way of contributing to the true narrative about relinquishment and adoption. Allow me to introduce you to someone who listened to another adoptee on my podcast, Kenneth Bonomo, from Season 4, Episode 53, and immediately made a connection through their similar journeys. They were able to meet in person and further learn more about each other, It brought me joy once again to be reminded that when male adoptees take the enormous step to be better connected to our community, we all reap the benefits. Jack tells it like it is, and I look forward to finishing his memoir because I already know that it is filled with wisdom and a perspective that will help me to examine my own story more. Jack Rocco, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. How are you doing in North Carolina? I'm great, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor for you to be interested in my story. Of course, and Rocco is such a cool last name. And I know that you are an MD, which makes you Dr. Jack Rocco, right? Correct. <laughs> I had a chance to look at your impressive bio on the ingeniumbooks.com website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be like talking to a like a real doctor doctor like you did your yeah. medical degree at Temple University. I was thinking because that was in 1992 I was thinking, what was I doing? And I was working as a police officer in the organized crime division in Chicago and so I was just kind of you know, I'm fascinated by dates, and I always, like, think about, what was I doing at that time? And so, yeah, that you, was, <laughs> yeah go yeah, ahead. I mean, that was very, a, a very difficult time, and I'm sure Chicago and Philadelphia experienced a lot of the same things as far as, you know, the crack wars and the gangs and inner-city violence, I think, was at an all-time high. And, and you know, I'm sure you, you have seen a lot of incredible things, just, just as I did when I was in school. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, crack cocaine had come to Chicago in the late 80s, and so we were in the thick of things in the 90s. So when I was reading your bio that you finished your residency in orthopedics in 1997, it took me back to when I remember a very charming orthopedic surgeon that put my dislocated shoulder back. And yeah, like it just brought me to these times in my life. So I think that we should start there. Like, your life has been extraordinary. You've been involved in a lot of different things. And yeah, let's start there. Your life, your journey so far. 
you know, for me, I, I guess I have come to terms, I guess, or joined the the adoption community, you know, later in life and really can't recall it being a major issue in my life, something I really focused on much. My family was very close. My grandparents, they had four kids and the four kids all moved within two blocks of one another. And, you know, I had 11 cousins to play with and close family for every holiday. So really a charmed life in a lot of ways good solid Italian food and plenty of love. I did well in school. I went to Pitt for undergrad. And then, um, you know, I mean, I was the first in my family to go to college and then was also fortunate to get accepted into medical school, which, you know, really blew my mind, to be honest. You know, my family wasn't, it really wasn't an academic family, if you will. You know, they were, my family worked in some of the steel mills in Erie, Pennsylvania. You know, for me to go to college was amazing for everyone. and. Um, you know, for me to get into medical school was, was amazing. You know, continued along in orthopedics was one of the most difficult uh, residencies to obtain. And, uh, you know, I was blessed to have received that position. But it was still, you know, a lot of insecurities with me. Not necessarily that I attributed to adoption, but more just, you know, that I came from a family that was more working class. You know, every year the temple would accept four residents per year into orthopedics. And my colleagues, you know, the one, his father was an orthopedic surgeon who also worked at temple in his career. Second colleague, his father was an internal medicine doctor who went to temple. The third resident, his father was an attorney who I think even represented our chairman. And then there was me, you know, the black sheep, if you will, blue-collar kid, Italian kid, immigrant kid, adopted kid, you know. I mean, it was pretty glaring, I think, at the time, but it just it never really struck me as being something that unusual or something that I should question. I mean, I appreciated that that close-knit family and that, that Italian heritage and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the lessons, if you will, and the you know, the grittiness of hard work and keep your nose clean and follow the rules, you know, just, you know, I received all that from my family and I was always just very grateful for that upbringing and, you know, that part of me that I received from them. I said I had no, no concerns about, you know, finding my birth mother or feeling out of place and I was very solid. You have always known that you were adopted, right? Correct. Yeah. How did that make you feel, just that being a part of your identity? You know, both myself and my sister were adopted. And also I had an older uncle who was was adopted. And we were very close. I mean, but he ended up passing away when I was about 10. But in those years, he he was dying of a brain tumor. You know, I was the oldest son in the family. And uh, a couple times he was, you know, he would go watch a movie. He'd, you know, go by himself, watch a Saturday matinee or something. And uh, one time, the manager for the theater called his wife and my aunt and, and you know, asked if they could send someone to come get him because he'd been sleeping in the, in the movie theater for, like, you know, for two or three showings. He just completely passed out. And that was kind of the start of when they found the brain tumor. So then they would ask me to go with him, you know, to watch him while he was, so he didn't fall asleep or have any problems which was, ended up being a fairly dangerous thing. You know, I mean, he would, he would go, you know, cross train tracks with cars coming and the rain pouring down and he would speed and he had a little, you know, just the brain tumor was messing with him a little bit. So it was kind of hazardous duty, to be honest. But, you know, I love the opportunity to feel special and be with him. You know, and I knew he was a doctor. We were very open with it. And my mother would always say things like, you know, it's the stuff we've all heard from that era that, you know, Jack, you were, you know, we chose you and we went through a lot to get you. And, you know, it was a very much of a struggle for us to get you and we love you and you were chosen and you were special. And my mother was just a wonderful, it still is, wonderful mother, very understanding, very loving. My father was a little more traditional. You, you name any, uh, you know, name any mafia Italian godfather movie. My father could easily be one of those characters. I mean, we weren't we weren't mafia per se, but that strong Italian persona. 
but he was always around. The family was always around. You know, I was never abused, never. I think my father might have smacked me on the butt one time when I was like 18 months old. And we were just very loving and, and togetherness. Yeah. I know that I met you through Fred Nicora and mm-hmm. his book, Forbidden Roots, I read and so enjoyed it. And you have a book coming out. Father's Day of 2023 of this year, Recycled, A Reluctant Search for Truth, Self Through Nurture, Nature, and Free Will. Did I get that right, the subtitle? Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a long subtitle, <laughs> but the name Recycled, it comes from my grandfather. And he was a, an Italian immigrant guy, you know, just loved his family and, and was always around as well. And at some point, and, and I, I talk about it in my first chapter, explaining the term recycled. He and I, he used to build grandfather clocks in his basement, build the cabinets for them. And I gave him a lot of credit for teaching me some of my early orthopedic skills with that. But we were talking by the, by the grandfather clock one day, trying to fix it. And he said something to me. He's like, Jack, you know, I think we got more recycled kids in the family now than we have our own. <laughs> and. <laughs> like, you know, in his broken, in his broken Italian, and I'm kind of like behind the clock, and he's in front of the clock, and we'd always have these conversations. I wish I had my face on camera during those those discussions because a lot of it was, you know, me rolling my eyes or like, where's he going with this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of feeling. You know, I never heard the word recycled, and he used that word to apply to anyone really who was. A, a child out of wedlock or a stepchild, you know, someone that was, you know, someone else's child that the, you know, the, the woman had and then my cousin would marry. So, you know, he kind of used it for all these, you know, for any, any generic, you know, not a pure Rocco family member kind of thing, you know, for these, these kids, you know, then I, I started getting comfortable with this word. And then when he passed away, like he and I were very close. When he passed away, I, I, I wrote his eulogy, and I was very honored to do that. Mm. Uh, you know, so I went around and I was asking everyone about things that he taught them or things that he showed them. So this recycled thing came up, and I started thinking about it. I was like, wait a minute. Holy shit, I was recycled. You know, and it was just, I guess it spoke to just their love and their inclusion with everyone. But it never crossed my mind that I was recycled, you know, whatever that word meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I felt like I was a true Rocco. I was 100%. You know, I earned my stripes. And it said it wasn't until after he died where I was like, you know, like they were so good with it that I didn't know I was different. I didn't think of myself as different. I was a Rocco and that was it, period. Right. You know, so, you know, so the word, you know, I know the word could be looked at as, derogatory or inflammatory, but you know, my whole family, they love the, they love the title of the book. I do too. You know, they, they, they're, you know, when I, I, I shared the book with, with all my cousins, you know, everybody, and they, you know, they had such good feedback from it, but they're like, every one of them's like, Oh, I love the title. It's an attention grabber for sure. When they hear it, they just think of Papa. You know, he was our papa, and, um, you know, it does get me choked up even now, but, you know, just really just full of love, and, you know, we made fun of ourselves, and we picked on each other, but, you know, it was all done with love, and, you know, that's, you know, when they understand the meaning of the word and how close he was to everyone. Yeah. I'm excited to read it, and I'm so glad I have it. I was hoping that I could finish it before this recording, but I will absolutely give you feedback uh, once I do finish it mm-hmm. as a published author, I think we appreciate that. We appreciate someone reading our book and, and leaving a review, right, on Amazon and and letting yeah. others know that it's there and you know what our thoughts are about it. So I, I look forward to doing that for you. And I think that Thank you. writing is so healing. I know it was for me is for me. And publishing is another layer, you know, of actually getting it out there. How does it feel to be? I know it's um, not yet released, but but by the time, well, yeah, by the time this airs, it will be released. Uh, mm-hmm. How does it feel to be on the other side 
of writing and publishing your memoir? Yeah, to be honest, petrifying. You know, I mean, it's, you know, clearly it's an honor. But, you know, I started the book, um, I started writing the book really just as my own therapy. I went through a separation and eventually divorce. Started the separation in 2017, you know, during the move. You know, this was kind of, you know, another step in my coming out of the fog, if you will. You know, I started just looking into, you know, what, 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 what the heck went wrong? You know, where, you know, everything was so perfect. What went wrong? You know, I mean, a lot of it did come back to, you know, some of the adoption issues, difficulty with trust and just really not knowing myself, I think, you know, and like, I, I think a lot of people will say that they don't know themselves, but adoptees, we really don't know ourselves. We don't have mirrors around us that represent who we are. You know, we have this ghost family out there that we don't know who they are. We don't know where we came from. You know, I think we all kind of fantasize that, you know, maybe my parents were kings and queens and maybe I'm a prince. Maybe someone's going to pull up in a limo someday and come... (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, but then you also have elaborate stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if you did the same thing, but, you know, as you're a child, I mean, I had, and I would fantasize that my real parents were from Italy and I was this perfect, you know, just so many fantasies and you live in this ghost world a lot of times. So it, it is just such a part of your, your early makeup. So I started, you know, writing just to figure me out, you know, and then, um, you know, I finished the book. The last thing I wanted to do was publish it. You know, I said, I wrote it for one me, Mm. you know, that I had to write this book for me, you know, writing the book, it just helped me tremendously. So I would say, you know, from that standpoint, you know, mission accomplished. I wrote the book for me done, but then I also wanted to write it for my kids. You know, I wanted them to understand their father, And the new realizations that I had come across, you know, like they knew me, but they knew me as their father, but not necessarily as a man and certainly not as a man who was struggling with this. My daughter and son, they both read the book. My, you know, my son, he's 14, 15 year old knucklehead wrestler. So he's not much of a, not much of a reader, but my daughter loved it. And she had so much to say about it. So once again, I was pretty much done. And I did not want my parents to know that I wrote the book, my adopted parents figured they would disown me, take me out of the will. And I didn't, I mean, I, I said mostly good things, but, you know, there are some, there are some lies and secrets and, you know, issues right. like everyone. But then I think the kicker was two things happened in 2022. You know, my mother had a heart attack and a stroke early in 2022. You know, we thought we were going to lose her. Before that happened, we had had the discussion that I was looking for my birth family and we found them, but then we pretty much swept it back under the carpet. We didn't talk about it anymore. We just went back to the status quo. You know, going through the process, it really gave me an appreciation and a much deeper love for them, a much deeper respect for them and what they did. Really just honest to God, guttural gratitude for everything they did and for me having such a wonderful life before my mother passes, my father passes, it happens to everyone, you know, that I want them to really understand the gratitude. And the book, I think, represents the gratitude. And then when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and you start hearing all this talk about, you know, oh, it just, it just, you know, adoption is, you know, immediately put into that discussion as the perfect solution for all these problems. And, you know, they're not equivalent, you know, abortion and adoption are not equivalent and I don't get into the, the abortion argument. I really don't want to get into the abortion argument, but it's always a natural progression. So I think my book was just my attempt to put, you know, my stone on the pile, if you will, and say that, you know what, despite the perfection and despite, you know, the opportunities and despite the blessings, all the wonderful things about adoption, when I started digging into it, you know, the details of it, you know, like I'm supposedly this like, intelligent established professional and you know i should be able to handle something like that incorrect you know i mean when we talk about the first time i read an adoption book and i you know i I had a blind date and the woman was adopted and she recommended a book to me i mean that book threw me for a loop i 
you know, reading that book, I was literally sitting on railroad tracks and coffee shops and park benches, just could not get my nose out of that book. It was Betty Jean Lifton's Journey of the Adopted Self. Mm-hmm. You know, in it, she she goes into a lot of the details and the issues and the difficulties that adoptees have. And I'm reading this book and I'm drawn in the margins and underlining and circling and I was like, this book is just me. This explains so much. I was that night after reading that book, I was supposed to go to a dinner with the entire orthopedic department and all the chairmen and alumni members. And, you know, I was a senior resident. So, you know, I had to go. This was a big, we were being celebrated here, you know, in front of the whole department. And I just spent the afternoon reading that book. And I went home and I went home to go get dressed. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't go. I was in such a funk over the book. I uh, I called one of my buddies. I'm like, dude, I'm sick. I'm vomiting. I can't make it. There's no way. You know, just completely. And I never miss work, never miss time, never get sick. But, you know, after reading that book at first, it, like I said, this intelligent guy. And suddenly I'm sitting there thinking, I am stupid. I am clueless. I don't know the first thing about myself. Mm. Um. I, I mean, I just felt, I felt naked. And Fred describes that in his book when Fred found this out. And Fred was a late discovery adoptee, but he describes in the beginning of his book how he finds out he was adopted at 41. And he goes for this walk along the lake at night. You know, he says it's like, you know, three in the morning when he looks up and he's six miles away from home. So then he starts coming back. And as he's coming back, he starts seeing people come towards him, people that are waking up, you know walking on the beach and same as me. I mean, he just felt completely naked and he said he had to walk into the woods so as not to see people. You know, when I heard him describe that, I was like, that was exactly how I felt. You know, like I can't even see me. I don't know who I am. I can't see, you know, just it really messed with me. So, you know, like the, you know, the narrative that adoption is, you know, such a wonderful, beautiful thing you know, I would have to agree with that. You know, for me, it was good. It was, you know, and and I've been through the whole process and, you know, but then I can also look at it and say later in life, you know, when I came out of the fog, if you will, I started noticing the dangers of it. And, you know, that if someone was abused or their parents were alcoholics or, you know, so many sexual abuses, so many like stories and foster homes and, you know, statistically, it's not a clear cut choice on whether adoption is a good thing or a bad thing. You know, if you see a Portuguese man of war, like, wow, that's beautiful. But go ahead and touch it. You know, it'll sting the hell out of you. You know, I think, you know what I mean? And I think in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, adoption is is similar to that. It's like, yeah, I mean, in theory and concept and, you know, and then you got, you know, the movies Annie and the musical Annie and just such a wonderful thing. Daddy Starbucks, I'm going to come and just rescue you. But then as I started hearing more and more of the stories of adoption and I went through the process of doing it myself and then, you know, I hear politicians and religious leaders and everyone saying like, you know, abortion is so bad and adoption is so wonderful, you know, but that's not the true story. There's there's definitely a range of experiences with adoption. You know, I think we do need to look into some of these issues that adoptees face. You know, like, you know, I started reading your book, you know, within the first few pages, you start to mention this. You know, I focus more on identity. Like, who am I? You know, am I Jack? Am I Larry? Am I Dr. Rocco? Am I Major Rocco? You know, <laughs> you know and I go into, the, you know, I start the book, I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I was Italian. And if you're Italian in Erie, Pennsylvania, you're you're automatically a Catholic, you're automatically a Democrat, and you're automatically a Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my experience. You know, but all those findings, you know, it's like your religion, your politics, your sports teams, your, you know, birth order, so many of those things that, you know, you receive, you know, with gratitude or without gratitude, like you receive as an adoptee, those things really aren't you. You know, so you go through this process. And like I said, in your book, you talk about, you know, you were Bonnie for the first two years of your life, correct? Right. You know, and then all of a sudden you go from being Bonnie to being Jennifer. And you say it so eloquently, you know, you say that, 
you know, I was Jennifer's Bonnie or Bonnie's Jennifer. Right. But you do live with those two identities. Absolutely. You know, and I refer to it in my book as um, my vanished twin. You know, it's like I was born Larry, you know, the vanishing twin syndrome. You know, sometimes women will receive an ultrasound early in early in the pregnancy. They'll identify two babies, you know, two, two sacks. And then they'll do another ultrasound later. And, you know, one of them has been absorbed or vanished. You know, so I think it was in the 40s when they discussed, then they discussed or discovered or talked about, you know, vanishing twin syndrome. And I just couldn't help making that corollary in, in my book when I wrote it that, you know, I had this vanished twin, this guy, Larry. Like, what would Larry have been? Who would Larry have been? You know, who would I have been? Yeah, you know, I thought about that, that a lot. Yeah. You know, like it messes with you. I mean, mm-hmm. it really, it's a, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole that has no escape. It has no answer. And then you're like, you know, which parts of me are Larry? Which parts of me are Jack? Which part of me is, you know, I mean, I eventually found out that, you know, Larry was my father. My birth father was mixed race. You know, so now I'm like, okay, so Larry, little Larry would have been black. would have been at least partially black. When I received my identifying information and I received court documents from, you know, Pennsylvania, from the transcript of the proceedings where my birth mother relinquished me. You know, the judge said, you know, is your name Joyce? And she said, yes. He said, are you the mother of this Negro child? And I'm reading this and I'm like, Negro child? Like, who are they talking about? Right. You know, Fred goes into a lot about the legal aspects of things. And I didn't really struggle with that. I didn't have much of a battle with it. My information came to me. When I read that, I was just like, wow. You know, I was so protected and so naive. And that also, like, comes into play. Like, I was in this Italian, happy, happy family. You know, I was protected from all the things that both my parents, my birth parents, struggled with. The 60s were a rough time. Women's rights and civil rights, you know, the hippie generation and Vietnam. So many of those things that were surrounding our birth, you know, and race riots and lynchings and you know, that part of me is like, Larry would have had to deal with all that. And who would Larry have been, mm. you know, with that history? Right. And, you know, who who is Jack? And why did Jack deserve to be so sheltered from it and so protected from it? And he benefited from that. All those things. And I, like I said, those are the things that, that I find interesting. I do too. You know, that was, yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, and I think all adoptees do. And I think, that you have like really piqued our interest in your book because of the approach you you've taken to think about those things because identity was thought to be one thing a part of your identity anyway and then you would learn something very different and yet that would be like two totally different lives I think most adoptees we know yeah, life would have been different not necessarily good or bad just different if we had not been adopted but when we delve into ethnicity and, and that part of our identity, yeah, it could be a very, very different picture. Because you're right, in the 60s, it's a lot going on as it relates to civil rights and discrimination and segregation and all of that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how you explore yeah. that in your book. I want to thank you for mentioning what book you picked up in the very beginning or early on Betty Jean Lifton's book I I did not read that one but I've heard that one mentioned many times I read Twice Born which was life-changing for me she was a great writer adoptee writer and Mm -hmm. I also appreciate you sharing the physiological changes that you went through after reading the book and I think things do affect us physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, the, the book was, was my therapy. You know, a lot of it was written during the pandemic. You know, all the isolation and death that was occurring. You know, I mean, I'm in the medical profession. I'm going to work still every day. But we were only seeing, you know, essential patients and emergencies. So my days were dramatically cut as far as, you know, time-wise. 
you know, we weren't doing surgeries a lot of time, elective surgeries. So I had a lot of time to just sit. And, you know, after recently going through a separation and a divorce and a move and, you know, everything's going on with my kids still and trying to maintain those re- those relationships. And I'm down here pretty much, you know, we separated and I went south and she went north. You know, I mean, like adoptees always have this sense of loneliness, you know, that there's never anyone who really totally gets you, you know, right. and. You know, and that really, like when I had my children, my God, you know, when you first see someone who makes the same facial expressions, I talk about, you know, when my daughter was born, that was another just really triggering event that, you know, brings adoption and, you know, all these issues. Like, you know what? I never had, you know, those close moments with my mother and I don't even know who my mother is. You know what I mean? Like, what's the deal? You know, and you also referred me to, uh, Ken Bonomo. Yeah, Ken up, yeah. You know, and I mean, his story and my story are almost like identical. You know, it, it's those same things. It's like, you know, when you have your kids and you see yourself in them, you're like, holy cow, this is the first time that's ever happened to me. I've never seen anyone who looked like me. You know, and, and I always joke with my son, you know, he, you know, when he's younger and he's getting into some mischief or something, you know, and he would always he'd look at my photos from like third grade when he was in the third grade. And, you know, he was amazed. He's like, daddy, me and you are like twins. And I'm like, yeah, James, imagine how I feel, you know? Um, (laughs) I was happy to connect you and Ken. I love synchronicities or things coinciding because when you and I were talking and you were sharing with me a part of your journey, I thought of him. I think that, yeah, like it was, um, Something that was supposed to happen, like you two connecting. You know, we talked on the phone for two hours straight. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) And I don't know, you know, I mean, I felt like I was hogging the conversation. (laughs) He felt like he was hogging the conversation, you know. So I sent him my book. I sent him my book. I guess I sent it beforehand. Yeah, I sent him the book before I spoke to him. He goes, Jack, I read this book out loud to my wife over a two-day period. And he goes, and I'm sure there's a lot of things in there that you didn't mean to be funny, but my wife and I were just sitting there just <laughs> laughing, laughing out loud about this story because it's, it's so paralleled his story. Right. You know? He said, it's something we were laughing downstairs. And my daughter came down and she said, this is Ken talking. He's like, my daughter comes down and says, what are you guys laughing about? You know? And, and the funny part is like, for me, chapter 10 is like, oh, it, it kills me. You know, just, just thinking about chapter 10 is a knife to my chest, you know. Mm. But it was also the moment at which I think a lot of the lies and issues that I've had my whole life kind of come to a head. And, you know, like Dr. Pimple Popper, you know, like chapter 10, that's the, that's the decompression of the pimple, you know. It's really the first time I describe really the first time where I could see me. You know, just once the lies were out of the way and I could see a real story, it was like I could actually physically, visibly see myself mm. after that chapter. But, you know, so I said this chapter, oh, my God, I can't I'm, I get teary. eyed just thinking about the chapter and if I read it, I'll be a slobbering mess. You know, when that truth comes out and, and just I think it validated both of us, you know. For you to connect the two of us and you know but but those kinds of things i mean i guess that's my point like i'm writing this book and i'm thinking i'm so unique nothing like this has ever happened to anyone and it's just ridiculous and i can't figure it out and i got to write it down to understand it you know then i finish the book and i start publishing i start giving it to other adoptees to read and i start reading other adoptee books and you know the personality traits or personality issues, you know, the thoughts. And I guess that's, you know, to get back to my point, I mean, when you said Jennifer Bonney and I'm thinking Larry Jack, you know, there's some really true issues that adoptees have with this identity and how that identity messes with you. And, you know, then talking with Fred about the closed records, I'm like, yeah, that's ridiculous that you're a 41 year old, a grown adult. You have to go to the courts you have to ask your mommy. You have to write a letter to your mommy who you don't even know. Right. If you can get your own birth certificate, if you can have access. Like Fred was an accomplished gentleman of all sorts. 
He was a teacher. He was an architect. He's a grown, fully grown man. And he's got to go to the courts. And the woman is sitting across the table from him or sitting across the phone from him saying, yep, I'm looking at your records right here. You know, this random woman who works for the state is looking at his original birth certificate. And she's saying, nope, you can't see it unless you write a letter to your mommy who gave you away 42 years ago. And she gives approval. He's like, what do you mean? You know, on top of the insult to finding out that he was adopted, no one told him, but everyone in his family knew. And now to suddenly say, okay, now coming to terms with that shock that made him feel so naked. And then to go to the state and say, you know what? I just want to see my records. And they're like, nope, you can't. And like I said, and once again, those same politicians, those same people, you know, who think that this is just such a solution to the problem, don't understand that. Like, I barely understand it. You know, I mean, not that I'm some standard society and the state boards and the national boards have all decided that I am somewhat intelligent, that I'm a smart person, I do well on tests. When it hit me in the face, I was a, I was a naked, stupid child again. You know, I was knocked back. And none of those politicians have ever experienced that. You know, that loss of identity, that reestablishment of identity, that, you know, it's like if I'm, if none of this was really my true calling, you know, was I really meant to be an orthopedic surgeon? What's my true self? Wow. You know, you know, like I said, if you start off with one lie, you know, I mean, those people will go back and generals or something. It's like, you know what? He never really earned that badge, you know, on his shirt. And then it's a big scandal. You know what I mean? You know, for adoptees, a lot of it is like you find out your birth history, at least for me, and my birth history wasn't that bad. But like I said, if I would have been Larry, would Larry have been an orthopedic surgeon? You know, he certainly wouldn't have been Italian, Catholic, Democrat, Yankees fan. Would he Who have would been Larry? An, yeah, would he have been an Air Force veteran, right? Right. Right. I mean, so many things. So that many things. The book is broken down into three sections. You know, the first section is nurture. And I go through all the the nurturing aspects of my life. And then part two starts in chapter six, and that, you know, details nature, all the natural things that I was, you know, oblivious to, you know, first I have my daughter, well, I get married, you know, establish my family, I, I have a daughter, seeing my daughter. And then in chapter six is also when I found my mother, my birth mother, and all those changes, you know what I mean? So and then I go on and find my birth father. And I use a lot of my experiences in, in healthcare and stories from the military and stories, you know, just to reinforce these concepts of who are we and what makes our identity and what happens when those things are pulled out from underneath you, you know, and then who are you? I like and, your approach. I really, I can't wait to, to read it. And then the third part, part three, is free will. And it's, it's kind of what I lived through after the realization of, okay, here's the truth, all right? Here's the truth, you know, like, you know, your book, The Truth So Far. You know, truth is not necessarily an absolute thing. I mean, like, my truth has changed so many times in my life. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I so agree with that. And I don't know, I'm not a, you know, a, a linguist or, but I, I, I come to the word ignorance, you know, and I, and I believe that ignorance, as I interpret it, is one of the biggest sins of all. And not because you don't know, but that because you do know and you ignore it. You know, so for like, for me, you know, my ignorance had been broken, if you will. My truth had been revealed a little more. And now that I knew, what do I do? Do I stay ignorant and just ignore these things? Or how do I deal with it? What do I do? You know, now I find out, you know, I, my, my birth mother was a genealogist and, you know, she had traced her family history back to like the 1400s. And it turns out that we actually had two relatives who came in on the Mayflower. You know, so I've got two family members that, you know, were pilgrims, Thanksgiving, the whole nine. Then I find out my birth father, you know, he came on a slave ship. His family came on a slave ship. And, you know, I grew up with this family that came over on an immigrant ship, Ellis Island and, you know, the great Italian migration, whatever you want to call it. Part three is, wh wh who am I? You know, now that I know these things, 
am I African American? Am I British? Am I, you know, I mean, I'm the colonizers and the colonized at the same time, you know, or am I this like great Italian immigrant story? You know, and also during those, you know, during the period when I was writing the book, a lot of the racial battles and George Floyd, you know, Black Lives Matter and riots and demonstrations and COVID, you know, where do I stand on a lot of these things? How do I, how do I reconcile these things? I'm not going to give the, give the answer away. I'm going to leave a little, little <laughs> for the end of the book, but yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like right. those are the things that I'm dealing with as far as what, and everybody wants to know, you know, what side are you on? What do you think about this? I can think all sorts of things. Or I've become proud of this, this transracial, this, you know, mixed race, you know, identity that I've, you know, received late in life. And, you know, even though I, I was an always known adoptee, I didn't know the race part, you know, so, so I, I do sympathize with the late discovery adoptees. I think that is the most egregious sin against adoptees is that they don't know that they're adopted. They either think that everybody else is screwed up and I need to just rebel against these people or they think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get on board? And I think then, you know, I, I think you get two broad categorizations of hyper assimilator, you know, someone who just keeps trying and trying and trying to assimilate, you know, really just, you know, people pleaser, the brown nose, the kiss ass, you know, just trying to always fit in, wondering what's wrong with them. Or you get the other end of the spectrum, which is just like, these people are messed up. I'm out of here. I'm going to hang out, do drugs, steal things. You know, you get, you know, a broad range of personalities in, in adoptees. And I think these things need to be looked at further. You know, before we just say that adoption is the perfect end, the perfect solution to this unwanted pregnancy. Yeah, you know, I agree. Which, which you know, leads I mean, me into something else. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I just want to, first of all, for my listeners, I, I want you to know that when we refer to Fred Nakora, he's been a guest on the podcast, and Kenneth Bonomo has been a guest as well. So I encourage you to go listen to those episodes if you haven't as of yet. And speaking of listening to podcasts, Jack, you co-hosted with Michael on a podcast called our best interest. I love that name. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. But so I wake up one morning and on one of my, I think it was so, I think it was Instagram, my Instagram feed. It says, "You may know Michael Rocco." I'm like, Michael Rocco, who's that? I'm trying to figure out, you know, relation, you know. So I search him, and it turns out that you know Michael Rocco was his birth name. So same as. Once again, same as you were Bonnie, became Jennifer. Mm -hmm. He was born Michael. And he uses his birth name as his, you know, nom de pen. So he writes in adoption circles under Michael Rocco. You know, so we started communicating and we actually met. I was driving up to Rhode Island and I stopped and met him in, in uh, Connecticut. He has said that, you know, we couldn't be more different. You know, at first look, I guess you would you would consider that, you know, he was someone I won't go into his story. That's his privacy. But, you know, we had very different views on on adoption and effects of adoption. You know, as soon as we got together, like the similarities and the understanding and, you know, I would say something and it would stimulate a conversation with him, but with a different opinion on it, you know, and he would, you know, start a conversation and it would stimulate with something. You know, so we were, you know. I think I think forget where I heard this, but I think it was on Beth Severson Severson's podcast. She talks about you know that you can have four people in a car accident, and all four of them are going to react differently. Some are going to say that's not so bad. I just got a little bump on my head. Someone's going to say, oh my god, I've got a hip dislocation. Another might have a a, a pneumothorax with a cracked chest and a and die brain injury. You know what I mean? So. I think that's a great analogy for adoption. You know, it's like it's a phenomenon. It's a weird thing to be separated from your mother. And, you know, I mean, I want to say raised by wolves kind of things, but it's not raised by wolves. I mean, you're raised by someone who's different than you oftentimes. Right. Different personalities. You know, I mean, it's like the, the chick that imprints on a cat. You know, that chick thinks it's a cat. 
that chick can't see itself. It sees a cat and it's mimicking a cat or it's following a cat, you know? And I think that that something about adoption that, you know, your subconscious comes out and, you know, I can't control my conscious thoughts, you know, or I can't get to keep my conscious thoughts together to, to, you know, write a, it's difficult to write a book about the experience. You know what I mean? To, to consciously pick and choose the stories, the points, the quotes, the philosophy. And then you get into the subconscious. Like, what is my subconscious doing? You know, so I go into a lot of that in the book too. It's like, and I, and I kind of put subconscious into the nature column, like your natural brain stem, you know, the things that make you breathe, sleep, crave food, seek sexual partners, you know, that core fundamental issue that's you versus, you know, the conscious is kind of your training, you know, the training that's your, that's more your nurture. You know, I'm a, I'm an Italian, which means certain things. I'm a Catholic, which means certain things. Mm -hmm. And you learn all those things that build on your identity based on your training. If you weren't Italian, you probably wouldn't have been Catholic. You probably wouldn't have been a Democrat. You probably wouldn't have been a Yankees fan. Well, now who am I? Well, am I a slave ship descendant or am I the Mayflower descendant? I mean, those are very different outcomes, not just not just in how I look at myself, but how other people look at me. How other like, people oh. look at you, exactly. I'm, and I'm so you know glad I mean? to know that male adoptees seem to be really coming to the forefront more now because you are underrepresented in the community. And I understand that you, Fred, Brad, and Michael possibly are going to do a podcast together. Yeah. We've already started doing some recording and, um, you know, so we're, we're working on a little bit of our format and where it comes from, but essentially we're trying to represent the male, the male voice, if you will. Right. You know, and that's another thing that goes into identity. I mean, this is something that's big in the, in the pop culture and news nowadays is, you know, transgender, you know, how your gender and your view of your gender and how other people look at you, the adoptee circles, you know, there's a lot of feminine representations but you know there's not as many masculine representations so by you you and kenneth just in within a week's time right like just in the last few days really the connection that you two have made is a perfect example of why it's important for male adoptees to come to the forefront Mm -hmm. yes i'm leaving for detroit tomorrow for six weeks of training and by the time this comes out, you know, I would have completed my training. You know, Kenneth is from Chicago and I'm in Detroit. I'll be in Detroit. So I reached out to him. And I said, how far is Chicago from Detroit? And it turns out it's about five or six hours, you know. Right. I'm like, let's try and meet somewhere halfway. So next Sunday, the two of us are going to be meeting in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, I got chills. For, like uh, when you told me yeah. that, I said, look at that. Would you look yeah. at that, how we, that unfolded. Yeah, thanks for that, Jennifer. We, I'm grateful. I know Kenneth is grateful. Well, you know, um, when I told you about him, I said, you know, I sent you the link to his episode. And you were on top of that and, and everything else, yeah, just unfolded so nicely. Kenneth reached out to me. I was so appreciative mm-hmm. when he reached out to me and, and we were able to co-create that wonderful episode. If he hadn't done that, right, if he wasn't, vocal and upfront who knows when you all may have met if ever mm-hmm. you know yeah and even your oh. episode to this this one today who whose life will it touch like we have no way of knowing in the same way with right. with your book so all of it's important yeah i, I would agree and, <laughs> and it you know kenneth said he's been you know really digging into his genetics and research and adoption stories since 2016 and he said when i heard your story jack i i would never heard anything that was so similar to mine and mm. goes, this, I, you know for me to come across that so quickly i mean it's validating more than anything because i think you know i think all people in general i mean i'm i'm very critical of myself you know i'm more critical of myself than anyone you know when i start having these thoughts am i grateful am i not grateful I, I, if i gotta think about it you know i'm like what's wrong with me that I can't figure this out. 
And then you meet someone else who's going through the same thing, and they're like, you know what? I couldn't figure it out either. Right. And I was thinking this. I'm like, yeah, I was thinking that too. And I thought this, yeah. And someone said this to me, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> suddenly, you know, all, all my feelings and thoughts are validated, and that, you know, that sense of loneliness is gone or going away. It's like, yeah, I wasn't alone. I'm not stupid. I'm not crazy. Yeah, it dissipates. Um, yeah, it's, there's, there's relief. Yeah, there's some relief. Yeah. And I know LDAs right. really describe it, because I can only imagine at 40, yeah. 50, 60, I know someone mid to late 60s that just did a DNA test to like hopefully fill out the tree a little more and did not recognize any names. Like it mm-hmm. does something to me just to think about that. Late discovery adoptees describe not really being able to trust themselves. It's a very different life being an adoptee. Fred has described it. You're not the same person you would be if you weren't adopted. It's just that simple. And it, it really amazes <laughs> me. You know, both Brad and Fred, you know, they're both LDAs. And, you know, once that floor drops out from underneath them, and it's what I had to do a little bit, you know, once that floor dropped out from underneath me, and you have to start all over again. Mm. You have to start at birth. You're like, what did I go through at birth? What did I go through when I was adopted? I love the detail that your mother kept of you. I don't have that. But, you know, you, in your, early in your book, you talk about, you know, day one, we brought Bonnie home and she met everyone. And day two, she was smiling. You know, I mean, she had a very detailed, you know, but for them to, you know, now they got to go back 50 years. And I had to go back 50 years and start to repiece these things together and, and like I said, it's it's disruptive. Writing the book, I feel much stronger. I told Michael, and Michael appreciates this when I say it. I said, I said, I after going through this, I think I can stare people in the face a little better. <laughs> you know, right. if someone asks me a question, I can stare them in the face and I can give them an answer. I like Whereas how you before, put that. Yeah. Yeah. Before I might try to sidestep. You know, I don't mm. know who my parents are. Right. I don't like I could tell you about my Italian parents, but I don't really know about my true parents, my real parents, whatever, you know, quote unquote words you use. I said, but now, I mean, I feel like I almost don't even need that armor, you know, of deception and just tangentially bouncing off things because you don't know. You just start making stuff up mm-hmm. or you make up a story that may or may not be true. You know, who are you, Jack? Oh, I'm an Italian immigrant kid. Now someone asked me that story. I'm like, well, you want to sit down? It's going to take a little longer. How much time do you have? Grab a coffee. You want to get a couple beers? We might be here till tomorrow morning if I start talking, you know? Get over it. It's it's not that simple anymore. And, you know, the book was just really, you know, me being able to explain me. Yeah, most people, right, don't have to, you know, can explain themselves. Well, I don't know what most don't people don't have to write a book right? <laughs> to explain themselves. Yeah, And I had to write a book to explain myself to me. I feel that way too, Jack. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, I, I yeah. really feel that same way. And there's kind of a theme that I didn't like set out to have for my podcast, but it is writing as a tool in your box mm-hmm. can be quite healing and you don't have to publish I was the same way I wasn't thinking of publishing I had to get it out of my system process it look at it read it think about it and hopefully feel about it like how do I feel about what I do know about my story but with this thing that has developed I'm quite proud of it because I think that sometimes you don't know that you don't know something I've always been a writer I've always kept journals but there are plenty of people coming into the fold that are realizing, hey, I think that that I can lean into healing by writing. You may publish, you may not. Uh, but the, the publication piece, I will say real quickly, it afforded me the opportunity to meet people that I may not have met. People reached out to me because they had read my book or they had heard about it. We've become better connected in the community. They've been a great resource to me as I have to them. And I don't know if that would have happened if I had not written the written and published the book. And so being right. better connected to the community for you, what's been most meaningful 
and if there have been any challenges? The simple answer is both. And you're right. You know, right now I'm kind of on that on that fence between published and because the book hasn't come out. So, you know, I haven't got feedback on it. You know, I think we're very critical of ourselves. Adoptees, always a little uncertain, a little insecure. So my biggest fear is, you know, I say something stupid. And believe me, I say a lot of stupid things. Sometimes my mouth gets ahead of my brain. But I try to be funny with it in the book. I try to say things. I mean, they happened. You know, whether you like the stories in the book or not, they happened. And, you know, there's stories of words that were used and things that were said that, you know, in 1975 or 1983 that you wouldn't say today. But that's a part of it as well. You know, the way adoptees were, were treated and talked about, the way African-Americans were thought about and talked about in the 70s versus the 80s versus today. You know, I mean, that those are things that I've evolved through as well. You know, so I think my first concern is just, you know, acceptance and, you know, understanding of it. But even just since I've been, you know, you know, announcing the release of the book, I've gotten, you know, positive and negative feedbacks. Why would you do that to your parents? I could never do that. Why would you want to drag them through the mud? Or, you know, oh, that's so brave. That's so courageous. You know, I can't control how people interpret it. You know, you know, it's a book. I personally selected stories that I thought told my story. I could go back and I could pick other stories that would tell a different story, Mm -hmm. you know? You know, so I hope people just understand that this is a representation of my life. It's not my life. You know, once you understand people, you agree with them more, more often. And I think if this is an opportunity for people to understand me, at least, you know, I think you should be listening to adoptees about adoptee issues. And unfortunately, we take the last seat at the table when it comes to the discussions, you know, the experts, the social workers, the adoption agencies, the politicians, the birth parents, the adoptive parents, they all have, you know, firm, established, grown-up seats at the table. Adoptees have been in the dark, and it's only recently through social media and through these discussions and podcasts that our voice is finally being heard. And I, that's what I hope will come of the publishing. If there's criticism, I, you know, I, it, I didn't write it for them. I didn't write it for people to criticize me. I wrote it for me, and I'm happy. I showed it to my family, my kids, my ex-wife, my mother, my father, all my cousins. They have no objections to it. They love the book. They, my father, who would have never talked about it before, you know, he asked me about it all the time. Hey, how's it going with the book? How's That's it going? You know? yeah. And that fact alone was worth writing the book. Then I can sit and have a conversation with my, I told you, this guy is like, you know, Sylvester Stallone meets Al Pacino or something, <laughs> you know? You know, so this is my dad, you know, forget about it. You know, what are you going to do? You know, all these like Italianisms, you know? You know, now I can sit and have conversations with him about race relations and adoption. I mean, like, somewhere along the way, my father's been, you know, like body snatched by someone because he's sensitive you know, he's I'm like, holy cow, where did you come? Where were you, were you? Was this really you all this time? Like, I think the book coming out on Father's Day, I think for me is very, you know, we got some surprises coming out on the release, you know, but the Father's Day release, I think, is uh, very important to me and, you know, to him, but also to my birth father, mm-hmm. you know, that, that the birth father is often looked at as the bad guy. We're not given enough recognition, right? Yeah. You know, the feelings of the birth father are, you know, so if anything, you know, from the, once again, from the male perspective, you know, when I was interested, I met my birth mother and that was fantastic, you know, but I think as a male, I was concerned about the birth father as well. Sure. And, you know, my adoptive mother, she was great, but what about my adoptive father? Mm -hmm. What about, what's his role in this? And not just my adoptive father. I mean, I told you my relationship with my grandfather, you know, my papa. That's quite meaningful to me, what you just shared. And the idea of Father's Day, because you're a father. So it encompasses so many men, giving them honor. Yeah, I like that. That's a great date for your book to come out. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
Well, in closing, because I really want to value your time, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish to share? I, I think we we covered a lot. Didn't you know, we? But I, I, holy cow. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. I want to hear what I said. <laughs> I want to hear what you said again. It was, it was just kind of blur. It is so important to hear everyone's voice on the subject, you know? You know, and nowadays with, you know, everyone wants data and, you know, collection of data and, you know, what what toothbrush are you going to buy next Thursday? They seem to know everything about you, you know, but I still think the the mystery of the adoptee, we see it, you know, because we live it. I don't think it's understood by the people that are making the policies, the people, you know, the parents who are deciding either to relinquish their child or keep their child. I don't think it's understood by the adoptive parents who are going to choose to take in this child that is not their child. And that's okay. And it's necessary sometimes, but it's not without its its pitfalls and successes. You know, there are certain things that make it successful. I think we need to look at what are the things that make it successful? What are the things that make it harmful? And if a, if a, a domestic adoption is going to increase in this country due to the laws, we need to do it properly because they did not do it properly in the 60s. We're all the results of that. We're the, you know, we're the, the carnage, if you will. There's a lot of carnage that people are just pushing to the side. That's just that person. They're just angry adoptee. There's a lot to be angry about, but, you know, we got to look at both sides. There's there's good things to look at and there's, there's angry things to look at and, you know, we need to look at them together and we need to use the adoptee community as a resource. Very good. That's so good. Well, I hope everybody would have either pre-ordered your book, Recycled, A Reluctant Search for Truth, Self Through Nurture, Nature, and Free Will. And it's going to be released on Father's Day, and this recording was made before that, but it will air after that. So... I'll put all the links you want me to in the show notes. And yeah, I think it's a wrap. So thank you, Dr. Jack F. Rocco, for having this conversation. Wonderful to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy we were brought together. Jack gave me another lens to consider when it comes to how my learned identity compares to the one I had come to know through the years. I enjoy reflecting on what my life would likely have looked like if I weren't an adopted person. Jack gave me the words for why I find that so fascinating. I enjoyed Jack being upfront and honest about how learning his true identity has affected his sense of self. His willingness to be public empowers us all. I'm excited to hear about Jack, Michael, Brad, and Fred doing a podcast together, specifically with the male adoptee audience in mind. They each plan to bring their perspectives to the public from a man's point of view. How cool is that, since men are underrepresented in our community? At the time of this recording, Jack's memoir, Recycled, A Reluctant Search for Truth, Self Through Nurture, Nature, and Free Will was scheduled to be released on Father's Day. I couldn't think of a better date to give the world a view of a male adoptee's lived experience. The celebrated Father's Day of June 18th was two days ago, so if you haven't pre-ordered his book, you can get your copy now. Check the show notes for the link. Thank you, Jack, for having this conversation with me. I can't close without thanking Fred Nakora, who can be heard on this season, episode 123 of this podcast, for setting things in motion for this recording with you to take place. It has been an absolute pleasure meeting you. I already get a strong sense that you being connected to the adoption community through being a published author, a podcast co-host, and all the other contributions you're making, all of us have added valuable resources at our fingertips. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. 
During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here.